This is Ken Forster, Executive Director of Momentum. Welcome to our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momentum, they are deep industry practitioners. We hope you find these podcasts informative as always. We welcome your comments and suggestions. Hey, and welcome to edition 131 of our Digital Industry Leadership Series. Today, I'm pleased to host Harinder Paul, Hans Paul, or simply Hans, founder and principal at Thing Company, LLC, where he advises global enterprises and startups on how to design and execute on their revenue, customer, and product roadmaps. Hans is a technology industry veteran and entrepreneur, driving technology-enabled business and product transformations in technology, industrial, telecom, and media companies. His technology and operations experience spans over two decades of turning scrappy startups and corporate innovation ideas into growth-oriented and profitable business based on transactional and recurring revenue models. Hans co-founded Norego in 2013 to help industrial IoT platforms transfer their legacy quote-to-cash systems to support subscription, pay-per-use, and pay-per-outcome revenue models for their IoT and software-enabled products and services. He sold the company to GE in 2017 and went on to lead GE's digital platform monetization and customer development strategy. Early in his career, Hans held global sales, product management, corporate strategy, and customer success leadership positions at several enterprise software and hardware companies, including Pivotal, VMware and EMC Corporation, now Dell EMC. In his spare time, Hans leads Seattle's 4,100 member IoT Hub Meetup Group. Hans, it's a great pleasure today to welcome you to our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Ken. I am uh, very honored to be here and uh, thank you for the opportunity. I'm looking forward to this. As uh, as well, and uh, I, you know, it's uh, it's not often I get somebody with such a deep bio and uh, so many areas that we could uh, we could take in terms of going deep on. But I think if there's a common uh, phrase that we're hearing in all of this, it's uh, it's it's monetization. So I think it'll be a pretty interesting conversation. Perhaps starting with that, I always like to understand a little bit about you know one's professional journey. What would you consider to be the the red thread through your journey? So for me, I have spent my entire career um, in front of customers. So the red thread for me is customers, customers, and customers. Um, I went to college to do chemistry um, and uh, ad- ended up doing computer science as well because I started hacking at 16 and uh, decided that was going to make me a better hacker. But at the end of my uh, first year, I ended up uh, in an internship at uh, uh, Armdahl working in the field service group. And at the end of that summer, um, I realized that I preferred being out and about in front of customers, uh, playing with computers instead of uh, um, sitting in a lab mixing chemicals and hoping I don't blow things up. Um, my, uh, uh, you know, I carried on in that, actually in that internship role uh, throughout my college. And eventually when I ended up back uh, in a real job post-college, um, I actually I joined a uh, European support center for a Unix server manufacturer, um, which eventually led into some consulting work. Um, and I 
after a brief stint doing consulting, I ended up in sales because I wanted to be in, in the front end of helping customers define solutions instead of being on the back end, um, you know, having to support solutions that didn't exist, um, you know, the break fix. Um, and so I've spent much of my career in sales and business development, um, not just in the U.S., uh, a pretty heavy focus in Asia, LATAM, and Europe as well. Um, I am a geek uh, through and through. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to have worked for companies that have represented the entire technology stack from enterprise hardware to developer platforms and SaaS applications. And I've uh, grown a few uh, gray hairs living through multiple computing waves, technology disruptions, and of course, uh, Gartner hype cycles. Um, <clears throat> the yeah, one of the things I realized through all of this was that you know companies and products die because of lack of customers, not because of lack of product or technology. Um, you know, regardless of the, uh, at least for me, you know, regardless of the shiny new toys capabilities, uh, for me, I always try and um, answer three questions to figure out if it's really valuable or not. And you know, starting with whose daily job does it change and how? Um, you know, if they're not engaged with your product, it's useless. Um, who cares enough to pay for it? And what value do you, do you um, uh, create for them? You know, the person who's using it may not be the buyer. Um, <clears throat> and then the last one, which a lot of people miss, is you know what what could help or hinder you. You know, this includes things like uh, uh, switching costs. If uh, the switching costs are too high for them to adopt your technology, you know, you might as well be dead. Right? I mean, they, they're not going to buy your technology. Um, so you know, like I said, that for me the thread. Red thread starts and ends with the end users and buyers and customers. You know, the, the themes of business development, as you said, and, and I'd add product strategy are, are quite pronounced in your experience uh, up through uh, co-founding Norego. What was the uh, origin story for Norego and what problem did you set out to solve? So <clears throat> with Norego, so Norego was actually spun out of uh, EMC and VMware. Um, uh, so during my time there, uh, you know, I got involved with a couple of just pure cloud businesses. One was a backup as a service business for Mosey, uh, called Mosey. Um, it was part of EMC. Um, it was a company that they had acquired. Um, I joined that group to help with uh, um, recruiting telco and media, uh, telco and uh, cable operators as a as a channel, and. Um, you know, we ran into a lot of issues uh, in, in, in just operating the business, being able to to um, uh, sell products the way we wanted them to. Um, and then, you know, we went uh, at uh, VMware. Um, uh, I was part of uh, the Cloud Foundry group and had responsibility for the cloud service to go to market. Um, and we were also looking at an on-prem managed service um, and ran into a lot of issues where, Essentially, we were hiring coders, um, engineers, to uh, uh, enable the back office um, and constantly competing. You know, I'd be sitting in an engineering manager's office requesting for um, uh, engineers to do something uh, related to uh, uh, enabling the back end, and they would, uh, you know, kick me out. Um, so when we, you know, when we set out, uh, we realized, you know, at the time EMC and VMware uh, were competing with Amazon essentially as tool providers, right? So other companies were building out the services. And one of the things we realized that, um, you know, most of them 
had uh, um, uh, everyone was just basically assuming that we just need a subscription billing, but you know we had learned that that's not what it was. So there were basically three things that we set out to solve. Um, you know, first was you know just recurring revenue. Right? Your <clears throat> um, the way that model works is you know you make money over time. Your gross margins are based on the the uh, cost to serve every customer, and you know, you process multiple transactions over the lifetime of that customer, right? For a subscription, you're going to do, sign, you know, you're going to have signups, upgrades, downgrades, add-ons. You know, they might pause the subscription, they might restart it, they might even cancel it. Um, you know, for a pay-per-use and pay-per-outcome models, you need to meter and rate the usage and outcome. Um, you know, legacy, legacy quote to cash systems are not built for this. You know, they, the in the case of EMC, for example, you know, the, those were built for selling a physical product with that came with warranty, and then after that, we sold services, you know, aftermarket services, um, and parts. Um, they weren't really built for these multiple transactions. Um, you know, the, those systems are optimized for single large transaction where the customer pays upfront. Um, and you know they're responsible for maintaining and operating um, the product. And as a service model, you as a vendor are responsible for all of that. Right? So, you know, uh, it, it has a, uh, quite an impact on your margin. Um, and then um, the uh, 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 you know we in the first business with Mosey, uh, it was founded in 2005. So everything in the back in terms of how we manage subscription needed usage was all um, hard-coded. We had a whole engineering team just working on that. With Cloud Foundry, um, we decided that we're going to get an uh, off-the-shelf billing system because that's what we needed. And instead, we discovered we're still hiring engineers because um, uh, we needed engineers to go and um, add code to the product to manage and enforce uh, entitlements and quotas. They had to track the usage um, and we had to build our own uh, mediation system. Um, so it didn't really take us away from uh, uh, having to add engineers to the product group just for back office. Um, yeah, we had multiple, in, in one case, uh, we had you know, multiple services and I think uh, uh, almost we had at one point almost 15 people out of a total of 70 engineers who were just focused on back office. Um, and um, so with Rego, you know, we we uh, uh, we solved this by making it very easy. You know, we provided code that an engineer could very quickly drop into their code. Um, it took, I think, the, uh, the in at GE was probably the most complicated scenarios that we had. Um, and the most complicated one we came across was uh, it took an engineer um, two hours to go through their code to uh, get us integrated um, because they needed to um, uh, figure out where they were tracking a resource. Um, and uh, otherwise, you know, once they dropped the code in, they didn't need to do anything. From that point on, the product manager could could manage how the product was rolled out. They could manage the pricing and packaging. And, and you know, we, we, we did... Um, we metered the usage, we rated the usage, um, and all the things that you expect a subscription system to do. Uh, and this, the, the second problem was you know, uh, very unique to software um, where you have multiple deployments in a day. Uh, some, I mean, we used to have multiple deployments in a day. And because we were running on our own infrastructure um, in co-located data centers, um, each time DevOps deployed, 
a feature or a new service, um, we we'd end up uh, in a situation uh, quite frequently where uh, the res it would require more uh, server storage, um, and we'd be scrambling, and there was no way to control um, when that product or feature was available. You know, once DevOps deployed, it went to everyone. Um, and so, you know, with Norego, we, we solved that by essentially providing a set of tools to the product manager um, where they could actually, once once the, the code was deployed by DevOps, they could actually take that, uh, put it up into a package. They could roll it out in front of a single customer or segment of customers, even um, a whole distribution channel. Um, they could A-B test pricing and packaging. You know, frequently when you test A-B, when you A-B test uh, packaging and pricing, it's usually with a static uh, web page. Um, with us, you know, not, not only did we um, uh, enable the A-B testing, we actually made sure that all the plumbing was in place in the back, back end so that if a customer signed up for a particular package, um, you know, we're metering it or uh, manage the subscription correct, correctly. Um, otherwise, uh, you're basically going in and getting more engineers to go and add that uh, feature. Um, and then the last thing that that we were solving, which we we eventually were going to get to, but uh, when we focused on industrial, um, it became pretty prominent, and that was the need to integrate into existing um, corporate cash systems. So you know, companies like GE have spent hundreds of millions of dollars across all of their business units to um, optimize you know the, the whole corporate cash process. They have hundreds of people sitting out in uh, the Midwest who are responsible for invoicing and collections across all of their business units. And um, with introducing new billing systems, a subscription billing systems, at least at the time, you ended up with a completely separate process. If you wanted to send a single bill, you could bring in engineers who could do the integration, or you could uh, bring in an SI to do that as well, um, to, to get the single bill. Um, and But one of the things that, that uh, we discovered in, with the industrial customers was that the finance guys were super conservative. They did not want to create any of these additional processes because for them, you know, you're talking about they're processing billions of dollars in uh, uh, invoices and, 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 you know, collections. Um, and this really just added more risk. So um, one of the things that uh, Norego did was actually uh, because we managed the subscription, we rated the usage, we knew exactly what the customer owed, um, we uh, um, integrated with existing uh, invoicing systems. So you didn't have to change your process, um, but you could introduce recurring revenue. Uh, and into your uh, um, ERP systems. So um, those are basically the three things. It's uh, it's it's pretty clear why GE acquired you because at the time, of course, Predix was you know the centerpiece of GE Digital. Um, to to what extent has the industry, the industrial IoT industry, if you will, uh, it, are they still struggling with advanced monetization models such as pay per outcome? Well, so I, I would uh, argue that they're actually at the forefront of these models, right? In fact, if you if you listen to a lot of these, um, uh, uh, a lot of uh, presentations use uh, aviation industries a power by the hour revenue model for aftermarket services as an example. Um, 
still, and uh, you know, they've been in aviation at least. It's it's been going on for 25, 30 years. It's also what led GE to start um, putting uh, sensors on their engines because they needed to uh, um, uh, track, um, you know, not just uh, uh, be able to uh, do predictive maintenance, but actually it uh, it, it helped them increase the margins on their um, uh, on the services because it helped them reduce inventory. They could, you know, engine could fail anywhere. Um, and uh, uh, by being able to predict, they could consolidate inventory, same thing with skill sets. So, so I'd say, you know, the, the models are already out there. Uh, your renewables industry is another example. You know, utilities are, are not putting in the infrastructure, right? They're not building out the solar farms themselves. They're signing power purchase agreements with the third party providers and uh, only pay them based on the amount of electricity that's generated. So, you know, it's it's already out there. Um, of the ones that I, at least in my experience, where it's it's failed, um, and, and, you know, I'd say uh, uh, even just in my own experience of uh, watching a, a traditional uh, enterprise technology company try to transition to this model, um, they, uh, 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 you know, one the lens they use to create these new businesses is the the lens of the legacy business, right? They they um, assume that we just need to put up a product, we'll get some subscription billing system in, and you know we'll just go sell it. Um, but because your margins vary, you make money over a period of time. It actually affects every single part of your business operations. You know, one of the things that we used to deal with was um, uh, you know again DevOps deployment. With, uh, DevOps would provide a feature that had something in um, the terms and conditions um, that needed to be changed. So it even actually affected the lawyers um, because you know they were used to once a year, once every six months, you update the terms and conditions. In this case, where you're deploying multiple times, it needed to be done multiple times as well. You, know, you need to update the terms of service. So um, I think most of them that fail are uh, don't make the necessary changes that they need uh, in their business operations to support a, uh, a recurring revenue model, which requires efficiency from how you acquire the customer all the way to when you first recognize the first penny of revenue. True uh, digital transformation in that digital is simply the catalyst. The transformation, mm -hmm. of course, is redesigning your business uh, around the enabling capability of digital. And so, and, and as you say, it even touches the lawyers. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> so, that so was after, a fascinating uh, thing for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> after a self-described long tea break, uh, you started Thing Company. What, what is your focus there? Yeah, so the, the tea, tea break was uh, much needed. Um, I After leaving GE, I decided to take time off because I, I wanted to connect, reconnect with my family. I hadn't seen much of them during Norego. Um, and before that, you know, I had roles where my customers, my partners, um, and uh, people I worked with were elsewhere. Um, so I was constantly on a plane, uh, domestically, international. Um, so uh, the, the tea break was needed, but it, it wasn't really a full tea break because uh, uh, I started to just informally advise uh, a handful of companies, startups, uh, bigger companies. Um, and then a couple of months ago, I decided to just formalize that uh, in, in the form of a, a 
thin company and a consulting business. Um, the focus is recurring revenue models. You know, I, I've got a lot of gray hairs from uh, um, uh, operating and building out these businesses, and uh, um, it became quite clear, uh, at least in, in 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 the last few months, that uh, um, we're still in that transition, right? Um, even though I've been in my tea break, uh, a lot of the things that come up are still the same. Um, you know, why these projects fail, why, uh, uh, you know, a lot of times companies, uh, at least in my experience, will jump into this um, and typically somewhere between 18 and 24 months later, uh, shut them down because they realize that it costs too much money to get into this, right? You're spending a lot more money up front than in a traditional business. Um, you know, spending money to not just build product, you're spending money to acquire the customer. When you sign, get them to the contract, um, uh, if you have a paper use or paper outcome, all you've done is spend money and now it just gives you the right to charge them. And you can't charge them unless you deliver the outcome. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very different model. And, uh, so, um, that's essentially what the, the focus for thing companies is, uh, to uh, help uh, companies that are in this transition to recurring revenue models and help them figure out, you know, what, what does it mean for product organization, customer, um, and uh, even revenue. A, uh, a, a simple, uh, uh, I guess, problem set, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not so. So when, when, you, when you're not advising companies, and I, I would say it's probably a direct outcome of the, the monetization work you've done, I know you've been active in thought leadership, including co-writing a book on the future of manufacturing. Uh, I, I think this is where you and I reconnected recently. In one chapter, I've seen you refer to uh, the open manufacturer describing how Industry 4.0, open source, and the gig and sharing economy are shaping the post-COVID manufacturer. Um, I, I believe you also referred to this as a, bio, or a prior version as OEMX. So yeah. can you say a little bit more about this thesis? Yeah, so, you know, the, um, uh, when I left GE, so at, at, at GE, uh, the, the role that I was asked to take on was to figure out how we could um, make sales more consistent. Um, and uh, uh, on the other side, uh, you know, we had a bunch of services that were not really being used um, and, you know, figure out how could we actually drive up usage of those. Um, and then we also had, pro uh, uh, or shut them down. Um, and uh, as part of that, I, I set up the uh, Predix's uh, Customer Advisory Board and Partner Council and got to spend a lot of time uh, with not just GE, uh, inside of GE's business units, but also their customers um, in factories, talking to people, uh, you know, designing the skin on a uh, wind turbine blade, um, which is fascinating. And um, uh, after leaving GE, I decided that um, uh, actually, you know, one of the other things was, uh, especially in factories, I would I would notice that people were still running around with clipboards and uh, um, tracking things like inventory and schedules on whiteboards on the factory floor. And these are, you know, big global companies. Um, and so it, it became quite clear that, you know, the, the um, manufacturing industries is uh, far behind and, and in terms of digital adoption. And so I wanted to focus on that. And one of the, one of the things that I came across at GE 
was the fact that they started reshoring manufacturing in 2012 for their appliances. Um, and um, I was curious because you know, GE was at the forefront of offshoring and outsourcing. Um, I was curious why they did that. And it turned out that uh, by moving manufacturing back to, uh, for their appliances back to uh, Louisville, um, uh, not only did they save a lot of money, um, the product uh, was cheaper the first product that they moved across. Um, and so uh, what what I've basically been doing is, you know, I wanted to go figure out what what would it take? Like, why first off, why isn't everyone doing this already? Um, and what would it take? And uh, this is essentially how I came up to this because, um, uh, you know, so my la the last couple of years, I've been spending a lot of time um, making new friends uh, in the uh, manufacturing ecosystem here in Washington, Oregon. And uh, one of the things I discovered was that in the U.S., 98% of manufacturers have 500 employees or less. 75% have 20 or less, uh, 20 employees or less. And this is data out of the U.S. Census. Um, and, you know, so GE reshoring is very different from a uh, little company reshoring um you know so but there were basically what i found was three hurdles um uh, one was it needs you know to, to reshore you're going to need a lot of investment in the manufacturing and uh, supply chain infrastructure right? and capacity you need to add capacity um you need to build new factories warehouses outfit them with uh, a state-of-the-art automation um, but, you know, a single factory can cost billions to build. Um, there was recently a, um, a report that, uh, you know, thanks to COVID, COVID, everyone's interest in reshoring. There was a recent report that uh, estimated that to reshore the world's supply chains um, over the next five, over, over five years. So to shift all foreign manufacturing in China, meaning stuff that's manufactured and for outside of China, but not to be consumed in China. The CapEx cost is expected to be a trillion dollars. And, you know, again, when you have majority of your manufacturers are small, um, this, this uh, outfitting and upgrading um, is most likely a non-starter. Um, and, you know, in, in the software world, uh, cloud services made access to expensive resources like compute, storage, and network, um, pretty cheap, right? You, you know, 20 years ago, uh, you needed skills, you needed some money to even buy a PC for under your desk so you could build a code, uh, build a, an application. You don't need that today. Within an hour, you can have it up. And so I went asking, you know, why can't manufacturing be the same? Um, the second thing was, you know, I mentioned this earlier, the, the you know, manufacturing is a, uh, a laggard in terms of digital adoption. And, uh, um, you know, when you look at a lot of the industry 4.0 initiatives, a lot of the automation initiatives, they really are aimed at the 2% of companies, the big, the big manufacturers, you know, or as World Economic Forum calls them, the lighthouse companies, um, you know, they, they have money to hire people to bring in the skills. And, you know, again, another report recently just said that, uh, even there, only 20% of um, uh, 
these industry leaders are actually driving the growth. Um, again, you know, patent matching with software, uh, open source brought the cost down significantly. Um, you know, uh, cloud services wouldn't exist without open source. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I looked at what automation technologies out there. All of it is proprietary. There is really nothing in terms of, uh, or very little in terms of open source that's very targeted at um, uh, manufacturing. And then the last one, which was really the, the biggest hurdle, was uh, there's a massive skills gap. So even before COVID, um, you know, there were reports that were projecting that by 2028, there would be over 2 million um, unfilled manufacturing positions in the U.S. Um, the average age of an employee in manufacturing is higher than the general labor force, and it's actually rising. Um, declining birth rates, you know, lack of vocational training and apprenticeship, and the perception of uh, manufacturing being a dirty and dangerous job um, have led to a lot of fewer uh, younger workers entering manufacturing. Um, then, you know, piling the new technology and all the automation, the stuff that we, we push, um, that also needs new skills. Again, if you're thinking about a 500-person company, 20-person company, you know, this, this is a this is an impossible task. Um, and, you know, again, with, with the software, patent matching with the software uh, and the technology industry, you know, today you can go to Upwork, you can go to Turin, find the skills that you need. Um, and again, I, you know, my question was, why isn't manufacturing? Uh, why can't that be for manufacturing as well? Um, not just for designing stuff, but for everything, uh, um, for production, for development. Um, and uh, um, so, you know, those those are basically the three things. And in terms in terms of the open manufacturer, uh, it's not a new thing. Um, it's actually something that uh, uh, I came across uh, a while ago, um, and it was a concept that was put out over a decade ago by the P2P Foundation. Um, and the idea is basically, you know, if you look at our ecosystem today uh, for manufacturing. Um, uh, manufacturing lines are privately owned. Even when you have a contract manufacturer, uh, you know, typically when you sign with them, they will dedicate a line to you, um, and it's not really shared. Uh, and um, you know, investment happens when the company decides it needs to invest, uh, not what the general, uh, pop, I guess, community needs. Um, and the idea with open open manufacturing is is to promote a flexible system, you know, based on open knowledge, open software, and open communities, um, where they can come together to actually build temporarily or even uh, permanently uh, to design and manufacture physical products. Um, so that's uh, the the basic uh, concept behind open manufacturing. But I should also point out that there is a uh, open manufacturing platform under the Linux Foundation umbrella, uh, which was created a couple of years ago. Uh, it's an alliance of manufacturing companies and the tech ecosystem. And again, you know, w the, the problems that they appear to be solving are more for the 2%, not for the 98%. Um, but, you know, it, it's a, uh, some of the work that they're doing at some point will be valid for the vast majority of the manufacturing companies that are out there as well. But that, that was, uh, in a nutshell, what 
the, the idea with open manufacturer is it's still a thesis that's in development and there's more questions than answers right now. As I uh, predicted at the very beginning of this conversation, there is so much uh, depth and we could take this in so many different directions, but unfortunately, uh, <laughs> we don't have the time in this podcast to do it, but you've hit on so many aspects that I think would be really, really interesting. Look, um, before we kind of close things up, I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about the work you're doing in the Seattle IoT Hub meetup. So tell us a bit about uh, that. Uh, yeah, so the the meetup group uh, it was actually started as part of Norego. Uh, it's been existing for about five years. Um, we're now at, we're now actually at forty two hundred members, um, and uh, it originally started out because when uh, Norego, uh, as Norego, we we decided to focus on uh, industrial companies. We were spending a lot of time talking about use cases because use cases what you monetize and we needed to make sure that we could support the models and it wasn't just you know one company in particular that was trying to do something special and um you know as a startup we need to make sure that anything we're building applied to more than one um so the the the, the at the time i went looking for um uh, iot groups here in seattle uh, because iot at that point for me was just another buzzword um, and uh, um, you know, it was a way for me to connect to other people in Seattle. Um, so we we generally tend to focus on three different areas. Um, uh, one is obviously we talk about uh, all things IoT, digital twins, edge computing, you know, pick your buzzword. Uh, but in addition to talking about best practices for how to use the technology, we also cover uh, you know use cases in specific industries. Uh, one of the things that I learned uh, at GE is, uh, as part of running the customer advisory board was that, um, you know, as technologists, we want to create these horizontal solutions that can apply in any um, industry. But um, the the challenge with, especially in industrial, is you have assets that have um, replacement cycles that go from years to decades. They vary from industry to industry. Uh, regulations are different from industry to industry. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that uh, um, we try to cover as part of that is also uh, you know, looking at how these technologies actually impact different uh, different jobs and in, within different industries. Um, the other area that that uh, we cover is what what I call IoT enabled industry or uh, you know, uh, industry 4.0. This is actually something that um, many of our members have been asking for. You know, I'm in Seattle, so you know, majority of our group is a uh, um, technologist. Um, now we're, we have more and more of the, the local manufacturing ecosystem as well. But, um, you know, the, the thing that we realized that at least the, what uh, many of our members told us was that they don't really get opportunity to talk to somebody whose job is actually changed. They don't really get to, to talk to somebody who can explain to them, you know, how the whole manufacturing process works. Um, so we're, we're doing more and more of those around, um, you know, for example, discrete manufacturing, process manufacturing, looking at, you know, how is uh, IoT and Industry 4.0 type of technology impacting different innovation uh, processes, uh, industrial processes, you know, manufacturing, for example, um, and then commercialization as well. Uh, you know, IoT impacts how you commercialize as well. Um, and then the last thing, which we started uh, in October of last year, being an IoT group, we have a lot of uh, people who are building physical products uh, as part of their value proposition. 
and uh, um, there's a huge skills gap here. Like just as I mentioned with the reshoring, uh, many of them struggle to figure out how to get it built uh, without having to go to Shenzhen. Um, and so last year we started a series of meetups to specifically help um, uh, connected hardware startups on their journeys. Um, so we've been bringing in folks who talk about, you know, how do you take your idea um, and turn it into um, a product? How do you uh, um, design for manufacturability? How do you negotiate for uh, when you're looking for contract manufacturers? And then, you know, most importantly, um, how do you fund your startup? Um, so those are kind of the three areas. And, uh, um, you know, it's uh, it's been fun for me. I've learned a lot, met with the met a, a lot of very smart and uh, knowledgeable people. So it sounds like a, a great uh, a meetup and uh, the the name is a bit of a, a misnomer in the sense that I thought you get around and you know talk about Arduino boards and things like that I mean this is like a a, a, a industrial IoT conference in some sense with all the value so it's a shame that uh, that uh, Luzerne Switzerland is so far from Seattle but uh, hopefully you'll start doing virtual versions of these that we can all participate in uh, well, that way yeah. as, uh, as well well, they, they are online. Uh, so, you know, thanks to COVID, we switched um, to online and uh, have been actually, uh, it's actually been really good for me because most of my network is elsewhere. And before, you know, I was dependent on somebody being here in Seattle, having the time to come out and speak. And now, you know, we, uh, um, in some cases, we've been doing weekly uh, meetups. And uh, um, yeah, it's, and then we'll probably stick with that format. Because we're we're getting members who new members were not in Seattle, um, all over the place. I think at this point, you know, every continent has somebody at some point who's called in. So, so the 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 next and final question, uh, you know, is 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 really apropos. Then, what is the next big thing for you, Hans? Well, so for me, you know, the, as I mentioned earlier, my I I decided that. At least for the rest of my career, I'm going to, I want to focus on manufacturing. Um, it's an exciting space. There are obviously a lot of opportunities, um, and uh, you know I'm a I'm a product guy, and eventually I want to get back into a product business. I, I enjoyed the process of figuring out what to build, finding customers, and, and uh, how to grow it. Uh, but in the meantime, I'm going to continue with Think Company and the consulting. Um, so. You know, I think the only the only uh, thing that I can say is the next thing thing for me is uh, the focus on manufacturing, and then uh, we'll see what comes out of that. Well, sounds like a timely topic, and and uh, yet another simple topic to uh, to to solve. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. uh, so yeah, well, well deserves your attention in that regard, especially post COVID, as you've said. So, yeah. well, Hans, thank you for this insightful interview today. Thank you very much, Ken. Uh, okay. I, have, I was very honored. This was really good. Um, you know, as we were talking earlier before, uh, you know, this was actually a pretty good exercise for me uh, coming out of the tea break to look at, uh, um, you know, what I want to be doing and uh, just uh, reflect on my past as well. So thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, no, very, very happy to have you. And uh, I think the challenge, I think, given your own background and what you've expressed here is uh, – 
the uh, you know choosing which of these directions that you could possibly go in because you've got such a depth of knowledge when it comes to monetization and manufacturing and uh, and so well and uh, uh, event planning. <laughs> so there you go. You've got you've got all yeah, kinds. Maybe of that's the next big thing. <laughs> There you go. Well, especially if you're going to go global with it, I, I kind of exactly. see uh, a uh, conference series, uh, the uh, Hans series coming up. So, so this has been Hanspal, Hanspal, founder and principal at Thing Company, and thought leader on monetization, open manufacturing, event planning, and uh, all kinds of good stuff. So thank you for listening, and please join us next week for the next episode of our Digital Industry Leadership Series. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Industry Leadership Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of podcasts and webinars, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.